Today's program has been brought to you by 360 Cookware. Their stainless steel cookware uses vapor technology to cook better tasting, more nutritional food. To learn more and receive 20% off, click their logo on our website, heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Tell me what I want to hear, tell me what I need to know, tell me that you love me dear. And you'll never, never let me go Cause even if it isn't true Oh, I promise I'll be good to you So tell me what I want to hear Oh, yeah, tell me what I need to know I don't need to believe That look that's in your eyes Cause you keep on telling me, darling All those sweet, sweet lies Keep on loving you, baby In your way Tell me what I wanna hear Whoa, tell me what I need to know Tell me that you love me, dear And you'll never, never let me go Cause even if it isn't true Oh, I promise I'll be good to you So tell me what I wanna hear Oh, yeah Tell me what I need to know Snacky Tunes, I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, Darren Bresnitz, obviously out in the field still. He'll be back sometime next month or following. Uh, we just want to take a moment to send out our thoughts and prayers to all the families in Connecticut. Um, I don't really even know how to process it or to, to put it into words, but it definitely puts in light all the trials and tribulations you have in your own life when compared to something like that. So here's to all of us at Heritage sending out um, I don't even condolences if that's the right word, but we want to send that out um, to the families out there and know that they're in our thoughts. Um, on to the show today. We have a full hour of food. Um, in our third year of talking with Michael Whiteman, uh, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hi, glad to be here. Um, if you have not listened to Michael's uh, episodes in the past, uh, feel free to pause and go back and find them. They're around the December episodes of Snacky Tunes for the year, last year and the year before. Uh, Michael, for those who have not listened to them, do you want to give a little background on who you are and, and what brings you to the show today? Well, what brings me to the show today is very expensive car service. <laughs> and 
I'm, I'm thrilled to learn that you are uh, now a not-for-profit organization because that makes my cab fare deductible. Indeed. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I run a restaurant uh, consulting company, and we work around the world in restaurants and hotels and museums. Uh, we create very big projects, and uh, you would know us or your readers would know us best because we created and operated Windows on the World, which was at the time the largest grossing restaurant in the world until somebody flew an airplane into the building. Mm -hmm. And um, we also recreated for the Rockefellers and ran uh, the magical rainbow room on top of Rockefeller Center. Uh, but just so you don't think that we only do highfalutin stuff, uh, we created the first uh, fast food courts around the world and New York, Hiroshima, and um, and Brussels. So we work at uh, at all levels of this business. And what were some of the restaurants in the uh, the fast food place in the fast food court? Oh, when we opened uh, when we opened the first food court at the World Trade Center, which was in 1976, by the way, uh, we had a 350 seat uh, operation that had uh, a hamburger. A joint in it where we made the hamburgers ourselves out of aged bull meat uh, and baked our own rolls and uh, had no additives. We were a little early in this. Um, uh, we had a we had a man actually cutting and cutting fish, battering it, and making fish and chips in, in front of people. Uh, there was a uh, a bakery uh, that sold during lunch things you would get out of an oven, like quiche and flatbreads and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, but it converted into a retail bakery in the evening where, uh, remember, this is the World Trade Center. A lot of people go home at 5 o'clock. We, right. we used to sell a 100 dozen loaves of bread every day. So. Wow. <laughs> it was that kind of food court. Amazing. A little ahead of its time. It, it was not only a little ahead of its time, but we had, we had planned it uh, as an urban solution on how to feed a lot of people quickly. Um, and also as an urban solution on how to use the space again in the evening for, for retail food. And um, so we, we did one in New York. We did one in downtown Hiroshima. We did one in downtown Brussels. And then we discovered that food courts were popping up in, in shopping centers everywhere. So we're, we're to blame for the terrible food that you get when you go to the mall and suburban, wherever you are. All the sparrows and all the... Yeah, yeah, all somewhere else shipped in. yeah. Um, so we had you on last year, and um, the two trends that I really wanted to call out that I stuck with me over here that I that I always kept an eye on was the rise of Peruvian food, and also um, everything global on a plate. So Peruvian food, Peruvian food. We didn't talk about it this year because we talked about it last year and the yeah. year before, and um, we didn't talk about it this year for two reasons. Number one, you get tired of listening to yourself. Yep. Uh, but the other is that uh, it, it's come true, uh, which is not necessarily true of all our predictions. No, we're going to be uh, real positive this but, year. Uh, but uh, if you go to the major cities uh, around the country, you find little pockets of Peruvian immigrants uh, who are, have, are bringing their cuisine. And, you know, it used to be if you wanted ethnic cuisine, you would go to some form of ethnic enclave or barrio. Uh, but that's not true anymore. The, the all these flavors and, and cuisines are escaping the barrio, and they're moving into mainstream mainstream America. Uh, so uh, you'll find uh, big deal Peruvian restaurants in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Portland, uh, Seattle, um, and it's uh, it's a cuisine that's accessible because we think we know a fair amount about Mexican food, so we can make a transition to Peruvian. Uh, the other is. Uh, which we always laugh about ourselves. We're, you know, Roseanne, my wife and food consultant, and chef and author, who's also in studio. Yes, and four times <laughs> and four times James Beard, James Beard Award winner. Um, you know, I'm I'm famous for being married to Roseanne Gold. Okay. <laughs> uh, Roseanne and I went to a wedding in in Lima a number of years ago, and uh, we started eating ceviche, which is the way you eat fish in in Lima. Uh, there's cevicherias all along the beach. And we were shocked. We looked at each other and we said, hey, this tastes just like eating at Nobu. <laughs> well, then we discovered that Nobu learned how to make ceviche when he was working in Peru. Oh. So the, the transfer of, of, of flavors from north to south and south to north is something that's really quite profound, but it, uh, it, 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 it's part and parcel of why Peruvian has become popular. 
and then the other um, focus you had on was kind of everything global on a plate, which, as we will later discuss, ties into what's coming for 2013. But I really did notice that, like, you know, no one felt restrained by any type of global boundaries this year. Like, if that sauce worked with that meat, with that style of cooking, it happened. That's uh, probably the most interesting part of what's happening to food in America today. Uh, the especially at the low end of the market, uh, you're you're finding people putting together ingredients that uh, your grandmother would never have considered eating at, on the same plate. Uh, if you grew up eating European inflected American food, what we call classic American food. Uh, the idea behind that food that everything kind of melded together and harmonized and, and it felt very nice and comfortable in your mouth. Uh, for example, meatloaf and mashed potatoes with this brown kind of gravy. Uh, that's not true anymore. Uh, you know, we went through a recession and we're still going through it, but when we started to go through the recession, we all reverted, uh, as always happens, uh, we reverted to what our company calls crisis food fried chicken. Fried chicken. <laughs> macaroni and cheese, uh, the holy hamburger, uh, mama's meatloaf, right. th- things that feel soft and interesting in your, in your mouth and familiar from your childhood. And we've all moved beyond that. Uh, we got bored with that all across the country, and now we're looking for things that are much more exciting. Well, where do you find this exciting stuff? Part of it is what we just said. Part of it comes out of the barrios. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it comes out from highly adventurous chefs who lost their restaurants in, in the recession or can't find work, uh, who are now doing a lot of experimenting with food in pop-up restaurants, uh, who are doing a lot of experimenting with food in, in food trucks. Uh, and if you if you start to look at uh, what came out of Los Angeles with the, uh, the most famous of the food trucks, which was the Kogi truck, uh, where they married Korean food with um, Mexican tacos. Uh, and... Uh, look at the progression that's that's happened since then. Uh, you find people specializing with food that specifically goes jingle jangle in your mouth. Right. Um, let's talk about reusing dead spaces um, as a future trend for 2013. I was recently at uh, Kinfolk, which is a bar in um, in Williamsburg, and they started doing pop ups Sunday nights through Thursday when it's relatively dead, and doing a um, a prefix menu, sixty five dollars Scandinavian food. And it was great. Uh, and I thought, it's like, wow, isn't this amazing? They're taking an otherwise dead night and a usually like hands up in the air, what was me situation, and turning it to an opportunity. It's a, it, it's a very big aspect of the business. Uh, and and, and it's, it's, it's what you just said and, and even more. Uh, there are examples of chefs trading restaurants. Uh, we've seen that with 11 Madison Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what's his name in Chicago? Um, what's his name? Grant Acton? Yeah. Yep. Um, but long before that happened, uh, in L.A. Uh, and in San Francisco, chefs would trade restaurants for a week uh, because it allowed them both to build a new audience for each other. And in L.A., you found a lot of itinerant chefs who uh, had no locations any longer who were doing um, dinner in a, in a coffee shop because the coffee shop only did breakfast and lunch and they would take the coffee shop over for dinner and for no investment uh, they would put the word out on, on Twitter and all the other social media and people would line up to get in it became a premium adventure uh, and so what, what you're seeing here at, uh, in, in Williamsburg is happening all across the country there are spaces that are available for next to no money or no money at all uh, where you can create for the consumer a big sense of adventure. Uh, and because it's a limited time only, uh, you can't get in. Right. I mean, and, and it's just amazing because... Roseanne? Oh, well, I just wanted to mention that Michael and his partner, Joe Baum, did this kind of restaurant 25 years ago at Aurora, which was a three-star New York Times restaurant. But on Sunday, they created something called Pots, Pans, and Platters. And it really appealed to a whole different group of people, kind of this family-style sense of home and togetherness. And everything was served uh, from a cart on these shoots pots, pans, and platters. So this really was another amazing foreshadowing that you and Joe did. 
Oh, we have so much foreshadowing. Our <laughs> eyes are blackened. But, yes. <laughs> but you're also saying that this repurposing and reuse of like you know otherwise dead space is going on in hotels as well. Oh, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that and give some examples? Um, off the top of my head, I don't have examples. But I, but, I, but I can tell you that there are a lot of hotels that are looking at dead space in their lobby lobbies. Uh, they're looking at restaurants that don't particularly work or that are busy only for breakfast because that's the meal that most people eat in a hotel. Uh, and uh, they're dying to bring outside people into the premises. Uh, so you'll find a pop-up place in a lobby. It might be a sushi bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it might be there for a week or a month. Uh, and if, if the hotel is really doing its job well, uh, it will have somebody programming this as, as an event. Uh, and every three weeks or so, it rolls over into something else. And uh, it becomes highly marketable, and it gives the local population a reason to go into a building that they otherwise would shun. I mean, do you find that, that it's a balance between for hotels between b- making something that the traveler wants and then also placating to the uh, local as well, and like striking a balance between between those two um, somewhat competing mindsets? Uh, it's, it's not that they're competing mindsets; they're conflicting mindsets. Um, the, the most popular meal in a hotel is breakfast, mm-hmm. and, you, and you size the restaurant and the hotel for the demand for breakfast. That automatically makes the breakfast room bigger than it needs to be for any other part of the day. Um, and hotels generally, A, do a bad job, and B, lose money on their food and beverage businesses. Uh, the idea of a, of a pop-up is to bring somebody with specific talent from the outside who can do something very narrow in his range, but do it very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and the hell with the people who are in the building at the time. Uh, it, it's really for the people who are outside, of, of whom there are now a lot more. Because everybody who was there for breakfast left to go do business somewhere else. Right. So it's like morning caters to the guests, afternoon dinner catered to the locals. Yeah. Now what hotels are doing, um, because of this problem of not having an attraction for the hotel guest in the evening. Uh, hotels are now converting their lobbies into, let's call them, glorified living rooms. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, they, they're turning them into glorified living rooms uh, for several purposes. Number one, uh, it's to get uh, people out of their rooms in the, at five, from 5 o'clock on uh, where you would normally, if you were by yourself on a business trip, sit down with your laptop and do your work in your room. Now we've created a social space. You can come down to the lobby. You can have a drink. Uh, if we've done the food well, you can have uh, you can have a snack or two snacks or three snacks and call it dinner. Uh, you can interact with uh, the lovely woman who's sitting opposite you with her laptop, and right. suddenly it becomes an event. Uh, that's happening in hotels everywhere. And then are the the menus themselves are they? Or do you see them as growing as being more challenging in the lobby? Um, are they crisis comfort food, or are they pushing the boundaries that some other you know forty seat pop ups uh, might be? Uh, there depends on on which price level you are, and and you know if you, if you're a Marriott courtyard, you're not pushing the envelope. Uh, but if if you're if you're a Hilton, uh, or if you're a a W. Uh, then you start serving the kind of food that you asked me about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, where these clashing flavors begin to appear, and each dish is more interesting than the next. So when you have one, you want to have another and another. Right. Um, speaking of clashing flavors, I know that we're finding more and more in the bar uh, sector. Um, there was a really great article, I think it was last year, maybe a year and a half ago, in the New Yorker about people who build up their, and people sensing the flavor profile business, where they have libraries and libraries of flavors uh, that they focus on. And I feel like a lot of that is now being employed in bars where you'll find exotic fruits or gums or you know bitters that you've never even knew existed from countries you've never heard of, now available for $15, shaken, stirred, and muddled, served to your cross. I, I think that bars uh, in the next year will be the most fascinating place to look for food trends. Uh, you know, we, um, we've, we've all graduated from having bartenders to having mixologists. Uh, and uh, a mixologist is a man who can uh, make a rum and coke for $3 more than it deserves. And a woman. And a woman. Uh, but 
there is there is a, a rise in this country of a whole new bartender and a whole new bar culture uh, that leans towards uh, natural artisan all the buzzwords uh, that you used to apply to food um, so there's now uh, farm to bar as opposed to farm to table I'm not a huge fan of that phrase <clears throat> Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of the the trend of having these extremely popular, uh, extremely uh, complicated cocktails uh, that take 11 minutes to to make and cost you far more than they're worth. What's your favorite drink? Like, if I were to buy you a drink at the bar and you could have anything, best bartender in the world, what would make you happy? I would have a martini. Uh, gin, vodka, dirty. Uh, I'm sorry. A, a martini is gin. Okay. And with with with. <laughs> With with a whiff of vermouth. Okay. And anything else is another drink that's served in a martini glass. Roseanne, your drink? Uh, I'm a, such a wine kind of geek, so I couldn't really say. Yeah, no, just wine. And and if I and if I had to specify the gin, yep, uh, I would specify Old Raj. Okay. Which cost costs like the Dickens, right? Um, and has a faint background of saffron. Okay. Uh, or I would have gin number two hundred three which is made uh, in San Francisco by the same fellow who owns the Dean and DeLuca chain of gourmet shops. Is that a small batch or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and then, you know, how are, you know, small batches being able to, being worked into this? Well, well I mean, the price points just kind of keep rising. At one point, at some point, like you're going to pay $20 for a cocktail, $30 for a cocktail. And, I mean, that's, that's coming. It, it, it is silly. Yeah, it is. I mean... You know, uh, once upon a time, they said a dessert would never be more than $10, and look what's right. happened with that. But one thing that's happening in cocktail culture, which cracks me up, um, is, number one, that the drinks, some, so many of them are actually so small, and they're being served in very retro, tiny glasses, and I wonder sometimes how people in their 20s really feel about having this small drink for, you know, $18, $20. But the real faux pas, and no one has mentioned this before, and I'll be the first to say it, say is it. the size of the twist. It's laughable. I see these huge swaths. They're two inches by three inches long of an orange peel. First of all, that displaces at least, you know, 30% of the alcohol in your right. glass. It was never like that. I mean, we are real connoisseurs of... Um, drinks because of the Rainbow Room. We are the ones who in, really recreated the uh, classic cocktail. We brought it back to life. So twists were small. And and I don't know how this sort of became the new look, but it, it always amuses me. It's so way it's, too much oil, it, essential it, it's oil it's for it's cocktail. Our, it's, our, it's our committee's principle. <laughs> the, the giant olive displaces half the gin. Right. But I mean, and, and you mentioned in your report that, like, you know, um, pours are going down, prices are going up. Do you think that's, I mean, I would think that, I feel like we've been speaking about like bar culture last year, two years, three years. It seems to still be, the bubble still seems to be growing. Will there be a backlash or is this just something that's like, it's so profitable, people are just dying to like have uh, an air of elegance with what they're drinking, like. Is it just going to keep going? This well, is really I, the great news, I think, though, since there are no cigarette girls walking around anymore. Mm. It is almost an exercise in restraint. So if people are really willing, if there's a kind of a sex appeal about this small, delicate cocktail, and they're willing to pay a lot of money for it, in a funny way, it's superimposed or self-imposed um, restraint in some way, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I think you're seeing a transfer to the bar culture from um, the food culture. Uh, where there where there was a price bubble as well, and still is, uh, that the use of the bu buzzwords of natural, local, uh, organic, um, sustainable, blah 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 blah. Yeah. Um, uh, when you when you read all those on the menu, you know you're going to pay more for it, and uh, so that 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 psychology has transferred to the bar. But uh, in in addition to that, you're getting at the bar all of these new interesting ingredients and flavors. Um, there's a there's a restaurant in, here in Brooklyn called Talde. Oh, Dale's been on the show. And great place, uh, yeah. so great. <clears throat> and, Have you been to Pork Soap yet? Not yet. It's, yeah, um, we hear that's it's great so too. Good. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Um, we're, we're too old for Pork Slope, so we can't get in. No, um, but um, you know, if, if you look at the bar at Talde, he's got all these beakers and flasks full of the stuff he uses to make his exotic cocktails. And uh, so I, I asked him to give me a list of, of what he's got there. Okay. And he's got a honey syrup. He's got grenadine that he makes by himself. 
He's got vanilla syrup he makes by himself, mint syrup that he makes by himself. He's got a Chinese five-spice syrup. He's got citrus and maple bitters, both that he makes by himself. So, you know, if you, if you, if you figure out what this bartender's time is worth by the hour, right. um, that has to translate somehow into the cost of the cocktail. So it, it becomes exciting on the one hand for the customer, A, to look at all these flavors, B, to see the beakers on, on, the, on the bar and know that this is not something that came out of a jar. Right. Uh, it's a, so it's, it's a big transfer of taste and psychology from food to, to the bar. And, and let's talk about large scale. Not just, I mean, Tall Day is great, but, you know, it's, 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 it's relatively small as a, as a restaurant. Let's go all the other way to like a TGI Fridays where they are competing to try and have artisanal, I'm, I'm air quoting, you can't say it on the radio, but artisanal <laughs> yeah. cocktails where it's like, you know, it's all syrup and it's all powders. Like, are they moving away from that? Or are they, you know, how are they competing uh, on this trend where you're dealing with, you know, a 40 top versus, you know, 300 top all over the country? They're largely competing the way they always competed. Uh, they watch the food trends. Uh, and uh, at, at some point they say, well, you know, we got to have a smoked duck burrito with uh, um, three different cheeses on them. And, uh, and it's got to be stuffed with some mesclun and a barbecue sauce, chipotle barbecue sauce. Uh, and so they'll go to a, a vendor and, uh, and say, you, you know, you've got to make us 40 million tons of smoked duck that we can put in our burritos. And, <laughs> and, and, an, and another vendor is saying, we need 12 million gallons of the barbecue sauce that we're going to work on with you that gets into the burrito. Um, and and then they'll have the fresh mescaline and whatever else that's going to go into it that's fresh. So it's a combination of manufactured and fresh ingredients so that uh, the stuff that's the hardest uh, is the stuff that gets manufactured. And if they can't manufacture it, then they don't do it. So if it, 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 it works that way for food and for the, big, uh, for the big chains, can they use fresh orange juice? Yeah. Is it fresh orange juice they squoze in the store? No. No. Uh, but it's fresh orange juice, quote unquote. Okay, let's talk about the quote unquote, um, because there is this and rise of you know the word organic is so profitable these days, um, and it's been found out that most things that are labeled organic are not actually any healthier for you than things that are labeled unorganic. They're just marketing term. Rules seem to be not as seems to be a little bit more lax. I'm talking not organic on a local level. I'm talking if you go and you buy your organic hummus spread from some supermarket they are just you know you're like well okay also not talking factoring and you know cost of transportation where it was made mm-hmm. there's i mean and we were speaking before there is a certain backlash against who gets to use these labels and a rise of lawsuits in, yeah. in that case yeah, yeah. The, the label the labeling is is a big problem because uh in in most cases in this country it, it's not illegal to lie unless somebody sues you uh I, I, I laughed the other day because Roseanne asked me to get some olives from the supermarket. And, uh, you know, they've got this olive bar and you, you take whatever you want and you put it in a plastic container and it's all the same price. Right. Uh, when I put the cover on to the plastic container, there's a label on the cover and the cover label says, um, Key Foods Fresh Olive Bar. Now, <laughs> I, to me, a fresh olive is something that came off the tree before it became an olive. Right. Uh, so you know what? What's the fresh part? Uh, the the Arby's restaurant chain is now serving fresh deli sandwiches. Uh, can you tell me? Can you tell me? Cured, what, cured in house, right? Can you tell me <laughs> by an eighteen year old kid? Well, let me let me let me tell you why they're calling it fresh. They're calling it fresh because they're slicing the meat in the store, as opposed to having the meat come in sliced, pre-sliced from somewhere else. Right. I <laughs> so. Uh, you know, you, you can read into the word whatever you want to. We used to joke uh, many years ago, uh, and I'm going back a long time. Uh, Five that years? There was, that Six the, years? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that there was more Beaujolais sold in France than there was grown in France. Right. Uh, <laughs> because uh, the bulk of the wine, grape juice that went into Beaujolais came from Algeria. Right. Um, and it's the same with Italy. There's more olive oil sold from Italy than grown there. Uh, because a lot of it is shipped to Italy, and you read the label, it says it's packed in Italy. It doesn't say it was produced in Italy. Uh, 
Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of creativity, and we always talk about the poetry of menu language and using some wonderful descriptive words in, in enticing ways. But the point you make is when does it really become an ethical, moral issue of when is something truly not what is said right. is creating um, some real problems because fresh doesn't necessarily mean extra price point or higher price point, but organic and uh, some of these other words certainly do. So this is a big issue. So I mean, I, and that is really the point. It's not It's not like a market thing. It's when you are, you have 20 minutes to go shopping for your kids and you want to provide the best you can and you're picking something that says organic and it's not necessarily done in the way that you think associated with organic, that's when, you know, that's the issue. So Yeah, organic is a very slippery term. It's a re- real slippery <laughs> term. So all of these things, you know, it's um, the lawsuits, the kind of bastardization of these uh, these keywords, um, large restaurant companies potentially trying to go towards more natural ingredients. Do you think this is going to rise oh, rise yeah. standards? Like, do you think that people will actually begin to adhere to these standards because there is actually now a fear of not only is there a fear, but there actually might actually be good dollars in the fact that restaurants want this and to be able to provide it for the company and avoid embarrassment in the press that they're not using the proper ingredients there there are lots of forces uh pushing in the direction that you've just said uh one of which was summed up recently by uh not me uh but somebody called it the anti-monsanto brigade um (laughs) because um monsanto is you know the the big leader in uh, genetically modified food and uh, very big in uh it's Roundup uh, insecticide, uh, but there are there are all kinds of lawsuits now by activist uh, NGOs. Uh, the most recent of which I read about today, uh, uh, somebody in California is suing Ghirardelli Chocolate because their white chocolate um, chips that you use for baking um, have no chocolate in them at all. Uh, it, it, it can only be called white chocolate if it has some extract of cocoa butter or cocoa bean in it. And if you read the label, it says um, it's made with um, vanilla and sugar, period. <laughs> uh, and there are, there are dozens of suits like this around the country. Uh, Nutella was forced to change uh, its labeling because uh, people looked at the front label and assumed it was something that was good, a good snack to feed your kid. Uh, when you look at the back label and you find it's got uh, two of the major food groups, fat and sugar. Right. And uh, that, that's, not the greatest, the way, that's not the greatest thing going on. There's no way that anyone could eat Nutella and think that that's good for you. Like, there's just, you could hope. You could hope. <laughs> you could suspend all belief of what you've ever had is all natural and then eat Nutella and be like, uh, well, okay. But I mean, so the, the real question is, do people stand a chance to win these lawsuits? Because that's really where the real power will come. If they get crushed, nothing's really going to change. Uh, sometimes you don't have to win the lawsuit. Sometimes you have to just bring it uh, in uh, with enough credibility to change the manufacturer's behavior. And I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of that. Uh, it's uh, it, it's called uh, liar liar your pants on fire. <laughs> right. Uh, and if you if you make enough noise about it, uh, then you can force changes in the way manufacturers work, as has happened uh, with all of the lawsuits. Uh, in the in the fast food industry specifically, McDonald's, you know, the peop, the the the, uh, the Hindus who discovered that their vegetarian French fries were being fried in beef right. fat, um, you know, as these things start to become discovered, and there's more and more because people are looking for these things, uh, and the reason people are looking for these things is because there's activist lawyers who know they're going to get a big hunk of the settlement. Right. So the the people the the guys who used to. Uh, bring suits against the tobacco companies are now bringing suits against the food manufacturers because there's another set of deep pockets. So do you think, although it's messy now, in the next five to ten years, we might actually see change for the common good? I think we will. Uh, I think uh, I think the, the great writers like Michael Pollan, uh, who is a voice of, of reasonableness as opposed to the shrill anti-Monsanto brigade, uh, uh, people uh, who who I, I, you have to give uh, you have to give credits to uh, Michelle Obama, uh, who dug a dug a hole in the White House lawn, and uh, and with the help of lots of chefs, Roseanne was was there on the White House lawn when the, when they launched the school lunch program. Um, 
with with she you know she planted a, an important not just a seed but an idea um, that uh, has taken a lot of effort to get some legs to it but it, but it's getting there right like what you hear so far support the network and become a member Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by Americraft. Americraft and 360 Cookware are proud sponsors of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Americraft is an American company, and like Heritage Radio Network, they provide the best. Their 360 Cookware is made of the highest quality ingredients, like United States Steel. It is made in the greenest cookware manufacturing plant in the world. Americraft makes great cookware and is focused on improvement. 360 Cookware is their exclusive line. It's a contemporary line of cookware and bakeware intended to let you, the Heritage Radio Network listeners, have a unique cooking experience. Its vapor seal allows food to be cooked in its natural juices, preserving all of the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients without added water, oils, or fats. 360 Cookware invites you to learn more about how this process works on their website, www.360cookware.com. Um, speaking of changing, i shift gears a little bit. Um, one of the things that I noticed in your report that I found interesting and had noticed was the charging for bread and butter at restaurants. Uh, I didn't know that, that, like, I just thought it was some restaurants were doing it, but now that I see it's in your trend report, therefore it is a trend. Um, but I also have seen that the bread that they are serving is better than the, you know, the whatever baguette that you would get hunked off with the ice cold butter. So let's talk about the rise of bread and butter in restaurants and is this a good thing, or is this just you know a, another way to save uh, save money? Well, it, it, there's, there's there's some irony attached to all of this. Uh, before I became uh, involved in the food business, uh, I remember well when the Four Seasons restaurant opened in New York, and the Four Seasons had a <clears throat> extraordinary bread basket of food that they made uh, breads that they made in house. Uh, the most famous of which was a miniature croissant. Uh, it was made by a famous pastry chef named Albert Cumin, who later worked for us and then went to the White House. And everybody talked about this little croissant, which, by the way, was really quite extraordinary. Uh, but for New Yorkers, it didn't know any better. They didn't know that a croissant was something you only ate at breakfast in France. Right. Uh, the Four Seasons charge for that bread basket. There was a bread and butter charge. And um, a lot of people were outraged by it. Why are you doing this? Nobody, no, nobody in New York does this. So they didn't. So now we fast forward to where we are now. And Roseanne and I were at a, a local bar in Brooklyn for brunch. <clears throat> and I ordered some kind of salad that had some drippy stuff around it. Mm-hmm. And I needed a piece of bread to mop it up. Yep. So we asked the waitress for some bread. And she said, well, we don't have bread. We have, uh, we have an a la carte bread and butter uh, focaccia thing on the menu for $3 if you want it. <coughs> and I had to weigh in my head whether I was going to spend the $3 to mop up this liquid or whether I was just going to get mad. Um, what was the decision? I, I got mad. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm noticing around the country that uh, rest. First of all, bread's expensive. If you buy bread, and and it's more than just your normal Wonder Bread, if you buy rolls with seeds in them and all that lovely stuff, uh, it, it when you put the, that basket on the table for a restaurant, it comes to a number. Right, and because it's also potentially an appetizer that they're not ordering because they get full on bread or... Correct. Yeah. Correct. Or just waste. Yeah. So um, 
and it, we're now in a time of uh, economic crisis, and there's cost pressures on restaurants. So, uh, a they're looking at the cost of this bread basket, and b they're looking at um, losing the the appetizer sale, and they're saying, well, if we're going to lose the appetizer sale, we'll charge for the bread. Right. Uh, the the irony of this is that the better restaurants that are doing this have also hired bread bakers, so they're doing it in-house. And the cost of that bread is a fraction of the cost of the bread that they buy. So those that are charging for bread that they're making in-house are A, giving you better bread, and B, making a lot more money at it. The uh, There's a place that was a past guest on Snacky Tunes, and we worked at the Gwinnett Street. They do a $5 Irish whiskey bread that I dream about, that I dream. And I would go in there for, you know, get that $5 glass of white wine and be totally okay with it. But I don't know if I would have maybe noticed the bread or even thought about it had I not ordered it past, you know, if they just put it on the table, I'd be like, oh, that bread was good, but it's a signature item now. Mm-hmm. And you pay for it. And it, uh, gladly, happily. Wouldn't you be better off with a roll and a shot of Irish whiskey? I mean, you know, I think, I mean, it comes, it's warm and the top is crumbly. <laughs> so um, another trend that you pointed out that's on the rise that I've also noticed, and, and maybe I've noticed this for a couple of years, but really is, is kale. Like everyone seems to have their kale Caesar salad now. Everyone seems to have, and was maybe, you know, seen five, ten years ago as being like too difficult or too hard. Like I was at a party this weekend where, you know, someone had to give a good kale massage before we could all eat it. Mm-hmm. But now it seems like that's like it's a prerequisite almost that you can't just have any green. It has to be kale. A year ago, I was so tired of kale that I, <laughs> I, I predicted that maybe it would go away, but uh, it hasn't. It just seems to have morphed. Uh, into something bigger than it was. Uh, but you know, if you go back five or ten years ago, kale in the supermarket was this big old head of, of stuff that you really had to chew at uh, and with a fairly unpleasant texture. Uh, the kale that you're getting uh, in supermarkets today is younger. Uh, there are people who are specializing in packaging uh, kale that's even younger than that. So it, it's tender and edible even when it's raw. Uh, the best kale that we've found is packaged um, without any of the stems. It's very carefully plucked, uh, and it comes from uh, this exotic place called Costco. <laughs> really? Yes. Costco kale. Costco kale by the package is the best kale that you you can eat it raw. You can make a salad out of it. You can uh, steam it just briefly or stir fry it. But there's, and it's terrific. And there's an example of a large scale operation. You know, picking up on a trend and probably funding farmers who might have otherwise otherwise changed their crops because there's real dollars behind it. Yeah, there is, and and they're guaranteeing that they're going to buy a huge amount. Uh, but they've also uh, created their own specification because if you get packaged kale in the supermarket, it's got stems. Right. If you go to if you go to Costco, oh, there's no. What happened to the stems? Well, Costco figured out that uh, if they did it better, they would sell more of it and 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 make a lot more money. Uh, but the idea of kale has has expanded into uh, other greens, um, other evergreens, evergreens, right. other greens, um, so that you're now finding tender collards, uh, which oh yeah 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 uh, which which are being used for the creative chefs who can't look at another piece of kale in, right. in the face, <laughs> um, and seaweeds, mm. and uh, if if next time you go to the supermarket, look in look in the snack area where the the fried kale with the sesame seeds on it is—it's so good. And, and you'll and you, yeah, <laughs> so right. good. It is. It is really good. And, uh, but you're you're going to find things like that that are not kale uh, that are equally interesting because the the idea of of these green vegetables as as an entity worth looking at just for themselves rather than something that just you know put a little green on the plate okay so this is really a happy story i mean this is i mean this is a fantastic you know kind of a very inexpensive green no one wanted going way way upscale and in fact it's such an economical way to feed your family i'm writing an article right now for cooking light magazine i'm a columnist for them i have a column called radically simple and uh michael mentioned this 16 ounce bag of cleaned kale that we often get at costco I can make three different recipes serving four people each recipe with one bag of kale. And it's really sexy. Yeah, and it's current. So, but then the real question is, is kale as good for you as they say it is? 
Yeah. Well, not if you put all that other gunk on it. No, but no. I mean, if the, you were... The gloppy, you know, Caesar dressing. I'm talking and, like you make a very simple with a light vinaigrette and kale salad. Yes, of course yeah. it's good okay. for you. Yeah. And it's fiber and it's bulk and major antioxidants. It's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, yeah, I, I, perfect. I, 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 wouldn't be, I wouldn't be skeptical of that. It, it's just that after a while you get... You, you get tired of seeing kale on, on restaurant menus and say, you're going to have something else. Yeah. Uh, but we do know of somebody who uh, is playing around with making kale chips, which basically means throwing them in the fryer. Right. And, and stuffing them into a hamburger. Fine. I would eat that. Great. Crunch. Yeah. So let's go to the other side of the health spectrum from kale to a term that you say that you should be very well of called fat washing. <laughs> which I was like, what, what is it? And looked it up. Um, why don't you give it justice to, to what exactly fat washing is? Uh, it, it, that takes us back to the bar. Yes. Uh, we always go back to the bar. <laughs> uh, if you want to make a bacon-flavored martini, uh, and bartenders are using a lot of bacon in their, <coughs> sorry, in their bar recipes, um, it's really unpleasant to have the bacon fat in there when you, what you really want is the flavor. Right. Uh, so you, you you have to drop the bacon in and warm it and let the fat rise to the top and then take the fat off it. Um, and what's left then is the residual flavor of the bacon. And that's basically... I what mean, you drop it, it into the alcohol itself? Yeah. yeah. but and, and that's fundamentally what, what fat washing is. It's getting the fat out of there. Have you had a fat-washed uh, martini? Obviously gin. Um, it's against my religion to put bacon or anything else into gin. Okay. Have you had a fat-washed cocktail besides gin? Uh, I'm also not a fan of having bacon in things where it doesn't belong. Fair. Um, so um, I, I'm a big fan of BLTs. Okay. And. Um, but you had it at Locanda Verde with the man who told you about fat-washing to begin with, the head like of uh, Starwood. <coughs> I did, but did I like it? Yeah, it was all right. It was okay. Yeah. It was okay. So we'll, we'll put this trend on a maybe to watch, maybe ignore but for apparently, <laughs> But apparently this is a big term in Southeast Asia. This yeah. friend um, is the head of all food and beverage for Starwood of all of Asia. And uh, we actually learned about that word from, from him. And then we tried a cocktail. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would try one. Mm-hmm. I'd maybe want something with whiskey. That could seem like a, a good pairing. I've never seen the look of horror in Michael's face. I've known him for a very long time. <laughs> Someone once served him a dirty martini, and I just, I could not get horror. There was horror <laughs> on your face. It, 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 I got somebody else's drink by mistake. Oh, okay. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh. Um, one of the other things that I, from your report that was actually really interesting, was the this idea of uh, branded um, restaurants that are backed by products which I think is a really interesting, and not just, you know, an espresso bar set up an event, but like actual, like, restaurants run with P&Ls and managers and people on the hook, um, specifically from pasta companies that you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, as a way to position or reimagine or have people think about their product. And, uh, you know, what are the risks of doing this? Obviously, the reward is more people know about your brand, they mm-hmm. see it in an elevated way, but it would seem that there's a lot of risk, like, let's say that your branded restaurant fails. Yeah, you know what? You know where do and if you want to talk about a couple examples of restaurants that are doing this, and you know potentially what, what some of the you know risk and rewards are of this. Uh, you have to go back a few years uh, to a a food example and a non food example. Uh, let me give you the non food example first: uh, the Apple Store. The Apple Store uh, was developed by Apple as a way to plant its flag in front of the consumer and to sell its products in conditions that it controlled, in an environment it controlled, with a staff that it controlled, with a level of service that it controlled, so that it placed its product within the context that it wanted the consumer to view the product. Um, that's a good non-food example. Mm-hmm. Uh, an early food example uh, is one we just don't necessarily think of that way anymore. But Starbucks started right. out as a coffee roaster uh, and ended up uh, selling its own product in its own stores, again, under the conditions that it controlled. Uh, so there, there, there's precedent for this and, and, and for good reason. So you get people like Chobani uh, Greek Yogurt uh, in a, now a very highly competitive business uh, opening stores under their own brands in order in very high visible locations uh, in order to use the store A for marketing, B for 
experiment uh, and see just to get the brand out there in another form than what the customers are used to seeing. Uh, Dannon has a pop-up yogurt store in New York um, and uh, Barilla Pasta uh, is starting a chain of pasta restaurants in this country uh, and they, they intend to have a lot of them make a lot of money uh, because they've already got the shelf space in the supermarket now they want to plant the brand in your mind in places where you wouldn't ordinarily see it. I think this has to do with the, the um, acceptance of you know massive product placement in movies, on television shows. You know, once upon a time, people would really be quite outraged at the sheer commercialism of that. And now I mean, it's, it's greatly it, accepted. In fact, you want to find it. It's like, you know, a game. Oh, look what's there. Look what's in the movie. So I would not be very accepting of this kind of um, restaurant or store because it just looked like blatant marketing. But it seemed like many years ago, the precedent for this mostly had to do with meat purveyors, like there was Ottomanelli's that mm-hmm. was primarily a butcher that became a meat market. And I think there's some more examples of that. But for the idea of a packaged product somehow t- to now inform a, uh, the concept of a restaurant seems to be a little I new. Mean, look, I don't really every, think- everybody is looking for consumer eyeballs and everybody is looking for new channels of way to sell their product. Um, I, I remember um, when haagen was only uh, a chain of ice cream stores. Right and and the franchisees screamed bloody murder when suddenly the brand began to appear in the supermarket. Right, uh, but but then now they coexist and they reinforce each other. Uh, the most interesting uh, one that I've just seen is at the uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport, where there is a Food Network restaurant and takeaway store. Wow, where wow. They're, they're expanding on the value of the brand as a way to bring customers into the. Look at the popularity of their magazine. No one ever anticipated that. It's yeah. become one of the most popular food magazines in the country. So is the restaurant serving dishes like like Guy Fieri's so-and-so and Rachel Ray's, you know, yeah. chili, things yeah. like that. So it's like yeah. branded recipes. Yeah, uh, but, yeah but, but I mean, I mean, as, as, as a food person, I would never think that that would be good. I mean, I'm just, I don't want to say like a Barilla pasta, like go there and like, I'd feel like I was just getting sold the entire time. And show that, like, I would never take it seriously as a restaurant. Well, um, Barilla, Barilla has company. There's a, there's a company from Italy called Rana, R-A-N-A, uh, that just opened the first of a series of stores, uh, pasta, pasta restaurants in Chelsea Market. And it's been delayed by about a year, but it just opened. And... Um, Coincidentally, as I walked through our local supermarket the other day, um, next to uh, one of the other refrigerated brands of uh, Butoni, of uh, ravioli and, and tortellini, uh, there are the Rana packages. So they're rolling it out on two fronts uh, in order to maximize consumer visibility. And I think rather than being judgmental about it, it's just interesting to observe the big shift yeah. in, in this. I, I would say that I might not... The reason why I wanted to talk about it was like, I don't think I would eat there, but it is really interesting. I mean, and granted, you are right with Starbucks and all that, but the reverse engineering of it is what's interesting, that they're backing into being restaurants as opposed to starting there and ex- expanding. Well, you know, this is tit for tat. Um, the, the big restaurant chains... Uh, who also need to expand their visibility are having their products packaged by private label manufacturers and they're appearing in supermarkets. So you can get um, a lot of... Yeah, a lot of chilies. You, you can get chilies, salsa. Fridays, yeah. Bennigan's, uh, uh, stuff packaged uh, frozen or in jars uh, in supermarkets. So it, it works both ways. Right. So this is almost like fighting back for encroaching on their yeah. space. And, and you know it's not going to taste the same. No. But yeah. it's a brand. It's it is a brand. And on this in this country we're suckers for brands. Yes. Even though we don't like to admit it all the time. <laughs> um so in the in the final minutes, um I want to talk about what you have for your buzzwords for two thousand thirteen. This is like a little lightning round type of um type of event. And then uh we can just kind of start wherever you want, but let's let's keep it positive. Let's start with zip code honeys. Because I I just—I never even thought about that, but that's real local. And how do you ensure zip code 
honey if they fly to another place and come back? Is it just where it's taken or where they're getting uh, or where they're getting the honey from? Well, first of all, I have to say that we're sitting here in Roberta's. Yes. And um, I've been very, very patient staring at this wonderful piece of just, pizza in front of me. Just take a bite. And I haven't had a chance to eat with my mouth full, but I'm going to try. Okay. Uh, zip code honey. Number one, bees don't fly all that far. Uh, number two... Uh, honey has become very fashionable uh, to the point where uh, when hotels need something to market and they want to put add some to their something to their green credentials they put a honey uh, a beehive on the roof <laughs> no I'm serious there's a lot of this I, I know all around the country and then they package it and they package it and sell it to, to their customers right um, honey has become fashionable uh, because it's supposed to be good for you is and it? Does it pass a kale test? Um, just barely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a problem with honey, but we won't get to it. You want me to be up? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, if you look at the, if you look at a at a good store, not in the supermarket, if you look at a good store, you'll find seven or eight or twelve different kinds of honey uh, based on the predominant flower that the bees are going to at the at the time. Um, and we have a friend in um, Philadelphia who uh, has a gourmet shop, uh, and one of the ways she made her names was with local honey, uh, with all of the differentiations from flower to flower to flower. This is Hilary Baum's uh, daughter, Annie, who created a, a local shop, and I think she has maybe three dozen different local honeys. What's it called? Um, you know, I forget the name of the shop. I'm really sorry to say. Uh, but there's such connoisse- connoisseurship with honeys today, and uh, even recipes now are so specific. You know, once upon a time, if a recipe had honey, you would have a couple of tablespoons of honey. Right. And now it's really very specific, whether it's linden or wild thyme or leatherwood from Australia. But it's very exciting. I mean, it's the kind of um, uh, information that used to just be associated with wine. But what I think is so interesting is that uh, before the show, we bought a pizza at Roberta's and we had a pizza that had honey on it. Oh, yeah, and then so Michael good. told me that this is a trend. This was new to me. It's it's so good. Um, all right. So next on the bud words, because there's one I've heard, craft bourbon, most mostly small batch rye, because I feel like all I want to do next year is to drink rye, especially in the winter. Mm-hmm. Who to look for? Why is this a trend? Why, is this, why are brown liquors on the uptick now? Um, brown liquors on the up, uptake in part because we've taken white whiskey as far as it could go. Right. Um, although, I have to say I'm working on a bar that's going to specialize in, in white booze, but that's for a different reason. Okay. Um, you know, well, there's, a, there's a sense of nostalgia and curiosity about the drink that's been around for all these years that everybody forgot about and nobody drinks anymore. Um, and when you get the artisans the same people who are making all of the artisan honey and the artisan salamis and all the other artisan stuff. Uh, when you get the artisans working on small batch stuff, uh, there's a romance to it, uh, and it, it, it has a flavor profile that's not quite like what you remember when you used to drink Old Granddad. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in addition to that, all over the country you will find small distilleries opening up. There must be a dozen of them in New York by now. Mm-hmm. Specializing, as you say, in rye, uh, in bourbon. Thank you to all you people. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and it, it, But it, it's harder to make brown whiskey than it is to make a, make vodka. Right. It takes time. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes skill. It takes years. It takes taste. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if, if you're tired of the neutrality of all of the all of the white stuff, and you can't look another tequila in the face, um, there's now uh, something that, because of its art, artisan nature, uh, immediately has an appeal to it. Um, let's talk about Asian flavorings. Um, Togarashi, Yukoshi, and I can't even do this, go to... Figures and tight. Oh, thank you. Um, why these three and what makes them so special? And maybe if you want to pronounce them properly as opposed to what it's, I It's not did. those three. Oh, it's not those three. Um, if you go to, in, in, in our location, if you go to a good Korean deli, mm-hmm. uh, you will find uh, Korean, Chinese, and Japanese spice mixtures. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're... Um, 
they, they range from fiery and incendiary to just merely interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, chefs are beginning to play with them. So when you, when you get chefs beginning to play with them and you see, start to see them on the shelves in your, in your own supermarket, uh, there's a level of curiosity now uh, that, that makes them trendy. And, um, you know, we, we transitioned from, from ketchup to salsa, and now we're beginning to transition uh, from our old salt and pepper uh, to these uh, spice mixtures uh, so they're, they're not just individual spices, they're mixtures of things. Roseanne has a favorite spice mixture that's not Asian. Uh, it's called za'atar, uh, which she started talking about 10 years ago, and uh, suddenly it's, it's popular. What's what? in za'atar? Yeah, it looks like marijuana and smells like Jerusalem. It's made of <laughs> wild thyme or hyssop, which is actually a Bible, um, an herb that was mentioned in the Bible. Uh, it's similar to marjoram, sesame seeds, and sumac. And I say it should be sprinkled on every piece of pizza in America. It's really got like a lot of umami, and uh, it's complex, and it's really very Mediterranean, the opposite of what we're saying. But all of these ingredients, it's a very inexpensive, interesting way to add a lot of interest to a menu item just with one word that sparks some curiosity. So you're seeing, for the first time, this is like a new game. When the James Beard... um, newsletter or booklet comes out every couple of months about what's coming up, I will look through every one of the menus, and I will circle the words that I don't know. That has never, ever happened before, and it's because all of this exciting, the condiments, the spices, and whatever from all over the world are now available. And I think in this issue alone, I'm embarrassed to say, but I, I circled 10 words. I did not know what they were. It's exciting. It's not embarrassing. It's exciting. Okay, Because, I mean, you. it's, it's <laughs> what do you like to say? It's like, just, like you, you're now ha- having to learn the globe much as of what you said last year, it's now continuing onwards. Like, it's great to learn new things. I mean, it would be a shame to know everything that's on the James Beard that's coming uh, in the year. So that's yeah. great. Yeah, my wish... Sparkle. My wish... When, when, when I learned the globe, I learned it because I had a stamp collection. Right. So I, I, I learned what all the countries were and where they were and, and how they got to be the, where they were because uh, I was collecting stamps in the, uh, the beginning of the post-colonial era. So I knew which country in England and Africa came from which country, and, and it, it would be it would be wonderful if somebody could figure out a way to transfer this global gastronomic knowledge in a way to teach children where exactly it came from on the globe be, and how it fits mm. how it fits gastronomically and socially into our lives. Maybe like a pile of ten spices, and each one could yeah. represent a different country. Yeah, Ooh, Ooh, nice is, idea. That's a good idea. Um, well, I want to thank you for being on the show, um, and before we leave. Roseanne, I just want to talk to you quickly about what you've been doing. Uh, it's seven weeks since Hurricane Sandy has hit, and you have been doing some great work uh, uh, in helping people and providing food for people yes. uh, who have been affected by the storm. Thank you so much. Um, on November 1st, I got an email from the rabbi of our local temple in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and he said, you know, I think we need to do something. I want to feed a couple of hundred people over the next few days. Uh, can you help? So uh, I said to myself, okay, I think I want to help. I woke Michael up. I said, listen, we have no food, no money, no plan, but get up. Let's do something. (laughs) The first day, we fed 600 people out of a rather small kitchen in in the synagogue. The next day, it was 1,000. The next day, it was 3,000. We've been going every single day since November 1st. I am in charge of this satellite kitchen now with platoons of volunteers, sometimes too many. Um, Sharansky came to see what we were doing because we were doing such good work in, in Coney Island, Brighton Beach with a lot of the Russian immigrants. And even Anne Hathaway came to our, our to, uh, little kitchen to see what we were doing. She was so, so excited. It feels very good to do it. We're continuing. We adopted a school in Far Rockaway. So we continue to do 500 meals every day for kids. They take the food home to their families. We're going to do a really special holiday meal. This Friday, candy canes, you know, uh, and brownies. Many, how, how many meals have you done so far? And we have so far, so far uh, created or fed 28,000 people, and I'm oh. very proud. And we do it for somewhere between 2 and $3 a person. It can be done, and people are still suffering out there, and I'm very honored to, to have been asked to serve. Amazing. And where can people sign up for volunteering? Um, Congregation Beth Elohim, B, uh, C-B-E-B-K dot org in Brooklyn. Amazing. Love to see you. And Michael, um, where can people find this uh, trend report online? Uh, you can go to Baum Whiteman, B-A-W-M Whiteman dot com. 
and um, click on trends. Okay. And then final question for both of you. Doesn't have to be on the list. What are you most excited for for next year? Michael first. Roseanne, we'll get the last word. Uh, I said I'd like to sleep the year away. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> In lieu of that. <laughs> uh, I... I I'm 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 interested um, not in anything that's that we haven't spoken about yet. Uh, I'm interesting to see how all of these these trends develop. Specifically, uh, your point about uh, the globalization of food and how uh, different ethnicities and flavors uh, end up on on a plate, uh, because it, it it has started at really the low end of the market, the food trucks and the pop ups and and uh, the itinerant chefs. But they're beginning to inform uh, what is served by uh, more upscale restaurants. And most importantly to me is that these kinds of places are providing entry points for consumers into the range of of, uh, ethnic specialties that are available in this country, which otherwise they would never be able to try. And Roseanne? I would like to find a cocktail to call my own. Oh, okay. Uh, well, thank you, the two of you, for joining us. I um, want to thank all of our guests, uh, musical and food alike, who've joined us for the past year. We are looking very much to another year of Snacky Tunes in 2013. Shout out to Joe. Shout out to Patrick. Shout out to Jack, to Aaron, the whole Heritage staff. Shout out to my brother. Shout out to my family. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, have a safe holiday, and we'll see you uh, in the coming year.